Welcome to the Summit County HealthCast, a podcast to improve the health and wellness of residents in Summit County, Utah. Join us as we interview local experts, professionals, and more to provide you with the best health and wellness tips Summit County has to offer. Let's get started. Hey everyone, it's your host Derek Sidaway. Just wanted to give a short intro before we get into the episode today. This week we are featuring a presentation from a parent night at North Summit High School. This was by Jessica Omer. She is a local parent, North Summit graduate, and also a licensed clinical social worker. In this episode, she'll be talking about how to recognize signs of anxiety, depression, and other mental disorders in your children how to recognize signs of substance abuse, how to talk to your children about these issues. And also, at the end, we talk about some treatment options that are available here in Summit County, as well as some additional resources that are available. Enjoy. I'm Jessica Omer. Like she said, I grew up here. My maiden name's Overt, if you recognize that name. My mom's here. She's supporting me, so that's great. I moved back here about two years ago, but I received my bachelor's and master's degree at Utah State. Loved going to school, loved learning about mental health, and I am a licensed clinical social worker, which is a lot of words for a therapist. And so I'm not, I'm pretty passionate about educating the community about mental health. I think it's something we don't talk about enough, and it's something we all can learn from. So I'm grateful for my education that allows me to do that. So I thank you guys for coming here today. Okay, what do you guys see when you look at this picture? A face, okay. Someone sees a face. Does anyone else see anything different? A tree, okay. Is there anything else? A woman. Yes, Nicole found it, yeah. A woman here or a face. I show this because something very interesting about mental health is that we all experience it differently. So just because Nicole, she was able to pick out the person in this picture, while most people saw the face, maybe it's because of her different life experiences, her different perspective or different view. And that's how mental health is, which is a very challenging thing for when people are seeking help because we all respond to it differently. I might have extremely different symptoms as someone else who is diagnosed with depression. And so it's just something important to remember that we all experience it differently, so we, we shouldn't be judgmental and we should always be willing to seek treatment. Okay, these are just some statistics about youth in the United States. 49.5% of U.S. adolescents meet criteria for a mental health disorder. So half of our children meet that criteria. And of those, 14% are mood disorders, which is depression, 31% are anxiety disorders, 19% behavior, and 11 substance use. Of those 49%, 22% report severe impairment. So that means these adolescents, they don't want to go to school. They're having a hard time going to school. They, they um, are so overwhelmed with their anxiety that they don't hang out with their friends anymore. So that, that would be something that's severe impairment. One thing that's important to note is a teen mental health issues, they are on the rise. I just read a study 
today, and I forgot to write down the, the name who's running the study, but something he said, teens are more likely to feel left out than 10 years ago. What might be those, what might be a reason for that? Yep, these things right here, right? I, if, if I didn't get invited to a party when I was growing up, there's a good chance I'd never find out about it. And now our teenagers have access and ways to compare themselves nonstop. So it's important that we're aware of that in our homes. And there is a 50% increase in clinical level of depression between 2011 to 2015. So we saw it go up 50% in those couple of years in our teenagers. And a very sad statistic, a substantial rise in suicide in 10 to 14 year olds. 10 to 14 year olds increased 200% from those same years, 2011 to 2015. Mental health is real for teenagers and it is something that we all can learn from. One in five children has mental health problems and it's not something that we should be ignoring. We're gonna talk a little bit more about some of those statistics. So something that, Tim, that I want to express, that it's, it's normal for youth to experience bouts of depression, bouts of anxiety, emotional distress. I mean, I think of when, when I was growing up, I remember those days where you just, you're especially going through puberty, it's just confusing and hard. So just know that that is normal to some extent, but when symptoms persist, then we need some, might need to seek professional assistance or, or, or make more effort. And some, a lot of times when, what, when you hear the words mental health, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Depression. Do you ever think of like trying to improve your mental health? I don't think, it's not something that we think about a lot. So something that I want to note is that mental health is just more than depression. It is, is really about our emotional well-being, our psychological well-being, our social well-being. Because to have our goals of having good mental health is we want to navigate life successfully. We want to, to develop meaningful relationships. We want to learn to adapt to change. We need to solve problems. All of those skills help us be more resilient in our mental health. And so I challenge you to think more about mental health of what can I be doing to make my mental health stronger? And what can I be doing to help my children's mental health be stronger? Because it's not, mental health isn't just depression. It's, we want to develop skills to exist in our environment and be happy individuals. For this, this presentation, we're gonna go through depression, anxiety, and drug use. I'm gonna talk about a little bit what they look like and some ways to talk to teens about that might be dealing with that. And then a couple things at, at the end. So depression. Depression, like I said, is on the rise in the United States for adolescents. These are the symptoms of depression. Sadness or hopelessness, irritability, anger, hostility, tearfulness, frequent crying, withdrawal from family and friends, loss of interest in activities, poor school performance, changes in sleeping and eating habits. And what's important to note with this one is that can look very different in, in everyone. Some people might sleep excessively, but it's also very normal for people who are depressed to wake up early mornings, 3, 4 a.m., and be unable to fall back asleep. So not all people who are depressed sleep a lot, which is kind of something you see in the media and you kind of expect. 
a lot of people have a very difficult time sleeping with depression. Eating habits, some people overeat, some people undereat. So it can be very different depending on person. Restlessness, agitation, being unable to sit still, unable to complete tasks, feeling of worthlessness and guilt, lack of enthusiasm and motivation, having a hard time concentrating. In children, this is an important one to note, especially elementary age kids. The diagnosis of ADHD is also on the rise and it is often misdiagnosed as ADHD when it's actually depression. So they're giving these children these ADHD medication and they're not, it's not helping them because they're treating the wrong thing. So it's important to note that there's a lot of crossover. So as parents, we have, we have to work really hard to understand what our children are going through. Unexplained aches and pains. So bodily, stomachs, or some people say their legs hurt, and thoughts of death and suicide. So yes, depression versus just growing pains, teenager behavior. And one thing you, you need to look, you need to consider how long the symptoms have presented themselves, the duration, the length of time. Um, a major depressive episode, it can be up to three weeks, 10 days to three weeks. So if you notice like these same debilitating symptoms and like those that amount of time it's probably pretty serious and something that you should look at so just realize how long the symptoms have presented that's a really important key factor and then another factor is how severe they are is you mentioned like if it's just a teenager is is their symptoms stopping them from hanging out with friends that they used, used to like or stop them from playing on the volleyball team when they loved that before Something, if it's really impacting their lives in a difficult way, that might be another indicator. And just how drastic the behavioral changes are. Like, are you seeing um, really big changes or are they just kind of moody here and there or is it pretty constant? Probably the constant and the length of time is probably your biggest indicator. So depression manifests itself a little different in teens and adults. In teens, you'll see a lot more irritable, angry moods, whereas adults, it's more sadness, what you think of classic depression. That's the frustrating thing about my field of work is they don't really know what causes things. We're, we're, getting, we're, we're getting progress of where it's coming from. They're doing a lot of research on the brain, but, but that's just what it seems to be in most teens throughout the board. And another common one with teenagers is unexplained aches and pains. Like I mentioned a little bit before, stomach aches, just like my leg hurts, my arm hurts. And one reason this may be the case is teenagers are, are much less self-aware than adults. We've lived longer. Adults are more aware of their body, more aware of their thoughts and feelings. Teenagers have a little bit hard, harder time with that. And so their symptoms may manifest as aches and pains in their body because they don't know how to express their emotional aches and pains. Does that make sense? If you go, take them to the doctor, everything checks out, maybe keep looking into it, keep watching it, and seeing if you notice any other symptoms that might show depression. Extreme sensitivity to criticism. I mean, this is a teenager thing. Do you like to be criticized, teenagers? Not usually, right? <laughs> but the, the depressed teens are plagued with the feelings of worthlessness. That's what they feel and think about. So when they're criticized and someone's offering that criticism, it 
it's very painful to them. So they really will react to that and have extreme sensitivity to that. And something that, this is a big one for teenagers. Um, in adults, in depression, when they withdraw, they withdraw from everyone, and that's very common. Uh, they isolate and stay away from people. And teenagers, though, um, they'll hold on to relationships, which is, which is a protective factor for them, but so they don't usually withdraw as much as adults do. Okay, so here's just some ideas about how to communicate with teens who are depressed. So the first, focus on listening and not lecturing. Resist any urge to criticize or pass judgment once your teenager begins to talk. The, the idea of depression and all mental health is we want people to be able to communicate their feelings and to communicate what they are going through so we can help them. So if we're lecturing, we can't do that. We have to listen. We have to sit with them, we have to listen, and we have to understand. If I woke up and decided I didn't want to get out of the bed once, and so I, I, I knew what that felt, and I'm, I'm going to tell my teenager what that feels like, and I'm going to tell them how to fix it, it's not usually the best route. Because we need the teenage, we need the teenagers, we need our kids, we need all of us to understand our emotions and be able to express them. So we need to focus on listening and not lecturing. And it is important that we show empathy. Does anyone know the def definition of empathy and how it differs from sympathy? So empathy is the idea of if I am trying to get to know. Michael, sorry, Michael, I know your name. <laughs> if I'm trying to get to know Michael and he maybe is telling me about something that's bothering him, if I had sympathy, I'd say, I'm sorry, Michael, and kind of walk off. If I had expressed empathy, I sit with him, I try and understand how he's feeling, try and put myself in his shoes so then I can better, more fully help him and understand his feelings. So the difference is you're trying to experience what they're experiencing instead of just feeling sorry for them. Does that make sense? Empathy is a really powerful tool and a very powerful tool if we can learn to use it in our parenting. So it's important that we be gentle but persistent. The feelings depressed kids and even adults feel are very confusing and they want to talk about it. Sometimes they don't even know how. So that's why we, ha we have to be gentle, but we have to keep trying. We want, we want to get the end goal of people talking. So we need to be respectful to the child's comfort level, but still let them know you're willing to listen and you're concerned. And it's so important to acknowledge their feelings. We have to remember the symptoms they're feeling are very real to them. Even if they seem so irrational to us, if I'm like, well, you can just get out of bed, like just do it, they might not be able to feel they, they can. I, I have worked in inpatient where it's in the hospital and they come and they're so suicidal or so depressed, they can't function anymore. They are, they're unsafe to be around themselves and others. And I've seen people physically not be able to get out of the bed. Like they physically cannot do it. And I can't just say you can do it. They, they physically can't. They are so deep in their depression. So we have to remember their symptoms are very real. If they're feeling 
inadequate, and, but you know they're not, acknowledge that they're feeling that way and don't just say, no, you don't need to feel that way. Just try and remember and be with them and help them know that you're listening and trying to understand instead of just trying to judge them or change how they're feeling. Because it's really, we can't just dismiss, dismiss what they're feeling because they are real, even if we don't understand it. And then this kind of goes along with a comment earlier, but trust your gut. As a parent, you know more about your child than anybody in this room or any professional. So you need to, yeah, like, like was mentioned, notice patterns, keep track of those, and that, that will help you to be able to communicate better and to make progress. Most mental health professionals, most doctors, anyone is gonna trust a parent's intuition. Anxiety in children and teens. So once again, anxiety is a normal part of childhood. Every child goes through phases. Short-lived anxiety can, can be temporary and harmless. And there's obviously healthy levels of anxiety. When we, like, I have this presentation tonight, I have some anxiety. So what do I do as a result of that anxiety? I prepare, I study, I try and do my very best. So anxiety is a helpful thing. Ang the reason... If we didn't have anxiety as human beings, our species wouldn't be alive because it protects us and it keeps us moving and it keeps us moving forward. But it can get to an unhealthy level that make it difficult for us to function. So children who are depressed are at an in increased risk of experiencing anxiety. They often come hand in hand. And while they're unsure what causes anxiety, if one family member has some anxiety symptoms, it, it's very common that it might run throughout the family. So there are many types of anxiety disorders. Generalized anxiety disorder, which is just what it sounds. Anxiety surrounds a lot of general topics. So school, sleeping, social interactions, it's very general. Um, panic disorders are where, where we, you can experience sudden onset of the pain in the chest, the tightening, hyperventilating, can't breathe, really locks up and pretty intense. And so that, that can be one anxiety disorder. Separation anxiety disorders, which are common in children up to you know, age five. I mean, it's common to have separation anxiety, but up to age five. And then the children usually grow out of it, but sometimes children have a hard time with that. So that can be something to watch out for. And social anxiety disorder, scared of social situations, don't want to go to school, don't want to be places where they're around a lot of people, um, specific phobias and fears when, you know, you're, maybe you have a bad experience with a dog, so you develop a, a phobia of the dog, and then PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, which I'm going to talk a little bit more at the end. For the purpose of this presentation, I'm going to focus mostly on generalized anxiety. And so some symptoms that you can see is excessive worry about many things. So school, health, safety of self or others. A lot of times when children and teens experience anxiety, they're very worried about what's happening with their siblings or their parents. Um, physical symptoms, chest pain, headaches, tiredness, tight muscles. And, and remember again, those symptoms are very real when they're experiencing those, even if there's nothing physically wrong. Missing or avoiding social activities, constant sense of feeling overwhelmed or that life is out of control, feelings of doom and fear, trouble sleeping and concentrating, 
which once again, the tr concentrating a lot of children need to be careful that they're not misdiagnosed with ADHD, because it could be anxiety, and then lack of appetite. But anxiety symptoms are also far-reaching, so this, there, there still could be more that, that they might face. Talking about anxiety, it's in, we want to get, when we're trying to deal with it ourselves or with our kids, we want to be able to recognize our actual fears and worries. So if you're going to try and help your kid do this, so start by describing a recent situation where you observed their anxiety symptoms. So, so yesterday when I dropped you off at school, I, you know, I noticed you were shaking a little bit. And can you tell me what you were feeling? And just ask that, trying to get their fears and worries. And maybe they say, oh, I was, I was worried you would be late to pick me up after school. And then they'll let you know. So we, but we need to know those, imper, imp, those specific fears and worries so that we can help them overcome them. Try and relate with your child. Tell them things you were scared of at their age. Let them know these feelings are very normal. Anxiety is normal. Um, and try and just find any way you can to figure out what the exact fear or worry is. And then try and like find the number one thing. Like the, there's usually when there's children are experiencing anxiety, there's really that number one thing that makes them really anxious. So try and establish that, what that is. It's important to teach your children about anxiety. You want to teach them that it's normal, that, that you experience it still to this day. We all experience it. And that it's not dangerous because to, to a child or a teen, it feels very dangerous because it's really overwhelming physically and it's really, it's really real and scary. And so let them know that it, it's not dangerous. Nothing is wrong with your body. As they start thinking something is wrong with their body and that it, anxiety is adaptive. It's trying to teach us something. It's trying to, trying to help us be in a better place that it can become a problem. The more education you can give your child about anything, depression or anxiety, the better. There used to be the old school thought is, well, if I talk to my child about anxiety, then it's going to create more anxiety. But they're finding that is not true and not helpful. The more education, the better. But you want to get your child to recognize or yourself to recognize what physical feelings are you having? So here in this example, it says I'm having a tummy ache and a headache and my heart is racing. So then that leads me to some thoughts. And I'm thinking, oh, what if mom doesn't come home today? And then I, I keep thinking of those thoughts and having those physical feelings and getting overwhelmed. And so then my behavior is I, I have to go find mom. I'm staying home from school. I'm not going to school. And then it just kind of goes around in a cycle. So teach how that anxiety works. And study it yourself if you, if you have a hard time with anxiety. Because the more you know about it, it makes it easier to help, to help solve it and reduce the symptoms. Some tactics to help kids or teenagers ex express their anxiety symptoms. You can just draw a body and then just have them circle where, it, where it, they feel stuff then it can kind of just help open it up and they feel kind of separated from the situation. Anytime you can draw a picture or, or have an idea like that where they're not just always verbalizing everything, that seems to be helpful even in adolescents and teenagers. All right, so now they wanted me to cover a little bit about drug use. So here's just some facts. 
More teens die from prescription drug use than heroin or cocaine combined. A lot of the thought is my child can't get access to any of it, but more teens die from prescription drugs than those hard street drugs. So they're around. In 2013, more high school seniors regularly use marijuana than cigarettes. So cigarette use seems to be kind of reducing and more marijuana is more common. And so this is an interesting one. The U.S. represents 5% of the world's population, but 75% of the world's prescription use population. So they're available to our children and teenagers. By eighth grade, 28% of adolescents have consumed alcohol, 15% smoke cigarettes, and 16.5% have used marijuana. Teens who consistently learn about the risk of drugs from their parents are up to 50% less likely to use them. So another one of the things, kind of that, get rid of that old school mentality, we can't talk about it. You tell your kids about the risks, you educate them, they're less likely to use them. And about 50% of high school seniors do not think it's harmful to try crack or cocaine once or twice, and 40% believe it's not harmful to use heroin once or twice. So they just kind of think it's no big deal. But we all know that isn't the case. So that's where that education needs to come in. So there are a lot of symptoms that you will see with drug use. But here's some just behavioral changes, changes in relationships, always using gum or mint regularly, cash flow problems, always asking for money, drive recklessly, secretive phone calls, endless excuses, sudden appetite, loud, obnoxious behavior, clumsy, periods of sleepiness, or then periods of high energy, um, locks doors, go out every night. So just another one that's far reaching the symptoms. Mood changes, emotional instability, withdrawn, depressed, loss of inhibitions, hostile, angry, uncooperative, less motivated, unable to focus, maybe hyperactive, unusually elated, the kind of a little bit of everything on this one. Uh, hygiene and help might have bloodshot eyes, you know, smell of smoke or smell trying to cover up perfumes or sprays trying to cover up smells. Poor hygiene, red flushed cheeks or face, <laughs> but tracks, track marks, burns, unusually tired, lethargic, nosebleeds, the list kind of goes on with the, on and on with the physical symptoms, seizures, vomiting, skin abrasions, depression, headaches, sweatiness. So there's a lot to look out for. So if you want to talk, if you have a suspicion, this is, this is more if you have a suspicion if they're using drugs, expect that there's going to be some anger and resolve to remain calm. Try not to be baited into responding with anger of your own. And then if the conversation gets heated, just end it is what they suggest, and just, but still try and bring it up later. We want to be able to have that open conversation don't forget to tell your kids anytime you're talking to them about a problem. It's because you love them and care about them and you're concerned. And, and then it's important, as mentioned earlier, to be honest about the dangers of drug use. That 50% less likely, that's, that's a pretty, pretty good odds if you talk to them. So and something that's important, and I think this goes with anything when you're talking to your kids or even kids talking to your parents, set realistic goals and have them establish before the conversation about what you want to happen. If you do suspect your child is using the conversation with the goal of stopping right there, it probably isn't going to be successful depending on the history. 
but just set some realistic goals. Like, I need you to check in with me every night at eight o'clock and give me your cell phone. Or like something, something realistic that you know you can handle. And keep in mind, kids often have a hard time admitting to using drugs. But those of you that hear, you should if your parents ever talk to you about it. <laughs> Spell out rules and consequences. It's, this one seems kind of obvious, but a lot of times kids and teens really don't know what their parents expect. So it's important to have a conversation about that. And so that kids know, like, if I do this, I'm in trouble. That they're very specific. Because like that, remember that statistic, was it, I can't remember the percentage of seniors that thought it was no big deal to try cracker cocaine. Obviously, they, they're, they don't know the rules and consequences of that. Be sure spouses are on the same page whenever you're talking to your teens and you're willing to set and enforce the rules. And don't set rules you have no way of enforcing. That's not going to make any progress. I want to talk a little bit about trauma because trauma is something that will put anybody at risk for experiencing a mental health illness or drug use. What, what do you guys think of when you think of trauma? What comes to mind? Emergency room. Okay, good. So maybe an injury or an accident. Anything else? Abuse, sexual abuse. Great. So we often think of big, big things, don't we? I was watching this TED talk the other day by a doctor, I forgot her name, and she's working in this clinic, lower income clinic, and they're treating kids with depression, anxiety, and behavioral problems over and over, and they're just shoving them out. And she's like, there's got to be a better way. There has to be something to actually help these kids. And what they found, they all had in common, they were in a lower income area, which makes it more likely, but they all had experienced some form of trauma in their life. So any trauma we experience, puts us at risk for de developing depression or anxiety. I found this statistic very surprising, but 26% of children in the U.S. will witness or experience a traumatic event before they even turn four. So it's something that is out there. And there is a lot of new research that trauma changes the brain. Trauma changes how we live and experience life as human beings. So the American Psychological Association defines trauma as this. An emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, abuse, or natural disaster. Immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. Longer-term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms like headaches or nausea. While these feelings are normal, some people have difficulty moving on with their lives. That's kind of the textbook definition. One thing we have to remember is there's no limits to trauma. Like, like that great comment that was mentioned. Something that might be traumatic to me may not be traumatic to you. And we have to remember that and it's extremely important because even the threat of violence, even if there was no violence acted upon them, that threat of violence can be traumatic enough that it'll have effect on their brain and development. A serious injury, witnessing a serious injury, any of that. And trauma can be acute, so it can be one event, so a school shooting, or a natural disaster, or it can be chronic, like was mentioned, long-standing sexual or physical abuse, domestic violence. So it really can be kind of all, all over the board. We're gonna have a quick brain lesson here. Very simplified. There's the amygdala, and that is what receives stimulus. So if I was working with a child and that had been abused by someone who was bald, then that stimulus, a bald guy, 
sends a message to over there, the hippocampus, that that is a threat to my safety. That is going to hurt me. Then the prefrontal cortex here is in the front is where we make, where we make our rational decisions. Now, teenagers and kids are already at a disadvantage because their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. Your brain actually keeps growing until women, it's like 21, and men, 22, I believe, somewhere in their early 20s. So your brain is still growing and changing. Every time that young boy gets, sees that a bald man, oh, sorry, Brandon. Oh, I don't know. It was the one I thought of before. I even... <laughs> but, so, but, that's, but that's the problem. So see, this young child walking around, there, there, there's bald people everywhere to see, and he's receiving this stimulus like, this is frightful, this is scary, we have to get out. So his brain is just always flooded with fright and fear and emotion. So then it makes it so he can't make rational decisions. It affects how his brain might grow and develop and, and change. So it just, when it's flooded like that, it really affects the development. Teenagers and adults that suffer from depression when they do brain scans often have a smaller prefrontal cortex. So whether that's from trauma or whether that's from the depression, that's a hard thing. What came first, a, they don't really know. So when their brain is overwhelmed like that, then it's harder for them to make good choices and there's always under this constant stress. So because of that, it's literally changing the brain and how their brain works. These are emotion, so particularly areas in emotions and learning. So kids that experience trauma as children often have a hard time learning in school and then will be more likely to suffer from depression or something like that. So trauma is really important to be aware of and even in our own lives and in our children's life of, of how it's affecting us. Because when they, they're finding great, great strides and they're treating the trauma symptoms, they're treating the trauma, they're helping people overcome the trauma, they're finding their reduced stress, the reduced depressive symptoms. So, so there is hope with it. But it is really, I, I could do a two-hour presentation about trauma. Is the, the new research coming out is just really helpful for helping people overcome depression and anxiety. And this is very relative. So I thought might be a little bit helpful, but when to seek treatment if you're having any of these symptoms or problems in your house. If your child poses a serious risk to self or others, this is important and we need to take seriously. I mean, I read that statistic earlier about how it's increased 200% in 10 to 14 year olds. And do you know what the number one killer of adolescents in Utah is? Suicide. The number one thing killing our children is them taking their own lives. So this is something that needs to be addressed and can never be ignored if our child talks to us or we suspect that or, or you feel it in yourself. It's, it's really important that we do not ignore them. They need support and love and care. And it's hard for people to talk about suicidal thoughts because there's a lot of shame attached to it. But, th but there shouldn't be. We just want to give help and love and support. So if there's any, if you're ever in immediate danger, the ERs, like mentioned, they're equipped to handle, like say it's 10 o'clock at Friday night and you're having an emergency and you don't know where to go, you can always go to the ER. They're, they're equipped with crisis workers and, and, and people that can handle stuff like that. So that's certainly something you need to seek treatment for. If the behavior changes are very severe, nothing seems to be helping, 
get a third party involved. It, it will reduce a lot of stress and it can be very helpful. And then if you as a parent don't feel emotionally equipped to handle the situation, there is no shame in having a professional help out. Children and teens need that support from adults to overcome these challenges. And if your child is unable to function in day-to-day -day tasks, probably something a little more serious going on that you should seek some treatment. And then if the symptoms are severe and last two weeks or more, or for like a two week period, that is, that is probably considered a major depressive episode and should be addressed with a medical professional. And then if there's any impact on the physical health, like severe weight loss, malnutrition, and then drug use, et cetera. So that's kind of a basic idea of when it'd be important to seek, seek further treatment. But there are a lot of options. I don't want this to be like a doom and gloom because we didn't really talk about coping, but there's a lot of options to help and treat depression and anxiety that are successful. There's medication that's very successful for people. There's therapy, group therapy, there's stuff in the community. And a big thing, which is really interesting if you want to go read about it, but something there, especially in young children that they're using to treat is just nutrition, something simple as nutrition. And they're having a lot of positive effects with it. And it's, it's made a difference in a lot of kids' lives. There is hope and the main problem for people suffering from mental health and people trying to help those that are suffering is they feel like nobody understands. And I know that is so hard, but I want you to know that there are plenty of people out there that understand. It might even be your neighbor that understands. And that I understand, I'll do my best to understand. We all know there's a stigma to talking about mental illness. And we, I think we all need to work together to reduce that because it's our future that's at stake if we don't. And I'm grateful for you that came today and just showed your efforts into trying to understand and further educate yourselves about this because education is key. I'm so grateful for my education and what I have with mental health because it's not going away. It's not gonna go away in our day and I think it's only gonna become more severe. I really appreciate you guys taking the effort to come. Yeah, go ahead. Having sat in on two or three groups like this, can you give some of us a better sense of what our options are to find treatment? That's a great question. <laughs> I, yeah, and that is a big challenge for people because it isn't advertised so well. So a lot of people end up at their general care doctors, which can still be helpful. You'll get the medication, but you won't necessarily get the coping skills or um, things like that. So I mean, but if that's all you want, that's all you want. Valley Mental Health covers our county in Summit County. And so if it's for a teenager, they actually have therapists on site at the school that you can contact for your kids. I, uh, that was the job I did in Ogden, Weber County. And so that's very beneficial. But Valley Mental Health is, a, is your main like hub for mental health to contact. And, and then, yeah, like any emergent care, like I said, some people don't think hospitals are equipped for that, but they are. And it's not obviously cheapest option, but it, if, if needed, that is, is there and available. Today, what we have at the table back here, we actually have a resource list of what's available here in Summit County. Valley Behavioral Health is on here. We also have a local NAMI chapter and actually the Christian Center in Park City also does offer counseling and most of these places will offer a sliding scale fee 
So they'll look at what you're able to pay and work with you in that aspect as well. The Communities at Care program and the Mental Wellness Alliance are working right now on creating a resource list for Summit County and we hope to have that out probably within the next year or so, I would say. And as soon as we have that list, we will be advertising it. So there is also an app. How many of you have heard of Safe UT? I was gonna talk about that. It's on my notes, but okay. I forgot. Good, no, no, it? go for it. One of the new developments that has recently happened is the Safe Utah app has come to Summit County. It is a school resource and a community resource to receive help on a variety of different areas of concern, including drug use and mental health. You, you can download the app and you can select which school district you are with, or you can register as a community member. So for example, if you had a student and you go to North Summit High School, you would register under North Summit School District. And it, you can submit anonymous tips. So if you have concerns that a friend or somebody you know could potentially be self-harming or suicidal, um, but you don't want to be, you have concerns that if you report this person face to face, there might be repercussions. You can actually anonymously send a tip and it will send it to the school counselor who will then address the issue with that student. You can actually also do it with bullying as well. Um, so it's a wonderful app and if any of you would like help downloading it while we're here today, I'd be happy to help you. It's just in your app store and it's free. Also, you can text or call the National Suicide Hotline number through this app. And I don't know if many of you know this, but if you are wanting to help somebody with a mental health problem, you can actually call the Suicide Hotline or text um, on the Safe UT app and get tips and recommendations on how to help an individual. So if you're preparing for one of these conversations with your teens and you need some talking points, they're a great resource. One thing that I wanted to plug while you are all here, in case you weren't aware, Summit County is working to address the, mental, the rising mental health concerns in our communities. The Mental Wellness Alliance has pulled together stakeholders from around the county to address mental health from various aspects. Now the school aspect of it falls under the program called Communities That Care. And Communities That Care, what their goal is to provide parent education nights just like this, provide curriculum to the schools to help improve um, mental health education with youth, and um, address also substance abuse as well. If any of you are interested in joining the Communities That Care work group or coalition to become a part and represent North Summit, we would love to have you and please come see me afterwards. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Summit County HealthCast. For news, program information, and more, visit us at summitcountyhealth.org. Stay healthy, Summit County.